message was recorded at Light Church in San Diego, California. For more information, please visit us at lightsandiego.com. Guys, how how cute is my wife? She's just so adorable. Yeah, I just yeah. Come on, she's so rad. Uh, tomorrow's our anniversary. Been married 13 years. Come on, a big big fan, a big fan of that that girl sitting standing next to me. And so we're we have just been so thankful, not only for the marriage that we've been able to experience, um, but for the family that God has given us and brought around us through Light Church. So thank you guys for being such a support and encouragement. We know a lot of you guys pray for us and our family. Thank you for doing that. It means the world to us. And uh, excited just to get to celebrate another year of getting to be married to my bride. Um, So if you guys want to get your Bibles out, uh, we're going to be uh, man, we, I think we're like three weeks away from ending our series we've been in since January 1st. So uh, exciting times. Uh, and we, if, if you've ever walked, if you've ever seen a, a renovation process, isn't it the most exciting at the end? Because you've been observing everything that's been going on, most of which you haven't really probably seen or experienced. But at the very end, you get to actually start walking around and observing like, oh man, this is cool. You get to see the, the paint color, the art that was picked out, the furniture. You begin to start seeing maybe the landscaping. And you can start walking around and experience the goodness and the beauty of what was always in the mind of the designer. And that's our hope as followers of Jesus. That as we apprentice under Jesus and learn under Jesus, that people, the longer we do it, people will begin to start being able to enjoy the goodness and the beauty that was always in the eye of the designer. That God always looked at you and had a purpose for your life. And as we let him renovate our heart, and as we learn what it means to lay a new foundation and a a deeper relationship with Christ, it will lead us to what we do of doing what Jesus did. And And that's where it gets fun because the world is watching They're watching what has been taking place for months and years internally that is beginning to show itself through our behavior and our actions. Um, And that's our goal is, is a relationship with God, our faith in Jesus begins inwardly. It begins in this invitation for relationship and intimacy, but was never intended just to stay there. It was always to be a gift for the life of the world. And that's where we're kind of ending our series is, How do we do what Jesus did? How do we live out what he did? And everything that Jesus did, if we look at his life, could be traced back to this concept, this idea of the kingdom of God. We talked about this a few weeks ago, but we're going to bring it up every week uh, because this is the central message and the central ministry that Jesus performed while he was here on earth. He talked about it more than any other topic, more than any other theme, and every single thing that he did, miracle, parable, would tie it back to the kingdom of God. And so if you can, uh, for those of you who are new to the concept of the kingdom of God, just for clarity, the kingdom of God is not heaven. The kingdom of God is anywhere where his rule and reign exists. So it is in heaven, but when Jesus showed up, his announcements is the kingdom of heaven, the kingdom of God is now here. 
through Jesus and now through his church and the Holy Spirit, the God's kingdom is advancing and regaining ground that once was occupied by the kingdom of the world and the kingdom of darkness. And so this, I don't know if you ever thought about the Christian faith like this, but we are in the business of kingdom advancement. We're in the business of announcing a new king, and his name is Jesus. And what that means is that there is a war going on. There is a battle happening right now in our city and around the world where death and darkness and sin and selfishness has ruled and reigned for thousands of years. But since Jesus came on the scene, his announcement, it was a proclamation that 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 era is now dead and dying off. And it is through his church and his Holy Spirit that we are bringing in the kingdom of light, the kingdom of God, and watching this overthrow happen. It's exciting. And like any new king, any new president comes to power, um, often that, that new stage begins with a speech, begins with this inauguration, this moment where there's a pronouncement, this is what I'm here to do. And Jesus did the exact same thing. He showed up on this scene not as a government official or a king, but as a new rabbi that sat in a synagogue on a Sabbath day 2,000 years ago, and he opened up a scroll from the prophet Isaiah, over 700 years old, and began to read these words that was his manifesto of what he came to do. This is why I came. And he reads this prophecy, and you can imagine this Jewish audience who has only known slavery, has only known oppression, many of which have lost hope, and yet still were some were longing for these promises to be fulfilled. And all of a sudden, this new radical rabbi from Nazareth begins to start reading these words that would have been familiar to everyone in the room. But rather than giving commentary on it, he closes that scroll and he says, today, what I just read is fulfilled in your hearing. I'm not gonna teach you about what I just read. I am the answer to what you just read. And so every week, this, this past part of uh, our this series, we've been reading Isaiah 61, the same, the same section of scripture that Jesus read as he sat in the synagogue. And so if you guys have a Bible, you can open it up to Isaiah 61. We're gonna read the first three verses together. The spirit of the sovereign Lord is on me because the Lord has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He sent me to bind up the brokenhearted to proclaim freedom for the captives and release from darkness for the prisoners, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance of our God, to come for all who mourn and to provide those who grieve in Zion, to bestow on them a crown of beauty instead of ashes. There again, there's this kingdom idea. He's not only coming as the king, but is giving power and dominion to his people, his restored people. To bestow on them a crown of beauty instead of ashes, the oil of joy instead of mourning, and a garment of praise instead of a spirit of despair. They will be called oaks of righteousness, a planting of the Lord for the display of his splendor. I mean, just these, these trees, they will be like trees, which we'll talk about in a minute. And we've said it before, but the fact that the prophecy 
talks about they will be oaks of righteousness. The fact that the Lord planted this new movement in a town that's name means little oaks, um, I think about often and I pray over often that this town, Encinitas, Little Oaks, would also be a time when this is fulfilled, that we would see roots go down and trunks grow up and branches reach out of this type of restoration that he talks about. But today we're gonna be talking about a specific line. It says, to proclaim freedom for the captives and release from darkness for the prisoner. Now again, uh, like every one of these lines, They're loaded sentences, filled with imagination, history, nostalgia. They they mean more than what you might just mean. And this is poetic, just at first read. But if we can understand what each one of these lines meant for the original audience, then it just comes to life in a whole new meaning. And so he, as a part of of his statement, his manifesto, he begins to start saying, hey, I am here to proclaim freedom for the captives. And that that term in Hebrew is most often attached to the the Jewish um, calendar event called the year of Jubilee. Now, some of you guys might have heard that. Um, Our second daughter is named Jubilee after uh, this event. I wanted to read you a passage in scripture of when it talks about when, when God is establishing his people, the nation of Israel, after they've been rescued from Egypt, he gives them this very radical idea that is, in, that is purely unique to Israel. And it is this idea of a Sabbath year. So every six years you work hard, they're an agrarian culture, so they grow their own crops and they, they eat what they um, what they've planted and what they've harvested. And every sixth year you, as you plant, Uh, The seventh year, you let the soil rest, which we've actually found through science um, is exactly what you should do. But for them, it wasn't a a scientific method. It was an act of trust. If, if If you are taking the entire year off, then God has to absolutely twice over bless you the year before. And so they had this rhythm set in place. But then it goes on and says, not only every seven years, but every seven times these seven years is something called the year of Jubilee. Let's read about what that looks like in Leviticus 25. It says, count off seven Sabbath years, seven times seven years, so that on the seventh Sabbath year, among to a period of 49 years, then have the trumpet sound. Everywhere on the 10th day of the seventh month, on the day of atonement, sound the trumpet throughout the land, Consecrate the 50th year and proclaim liberty throughout the land to all its inhabitants. It shall be a jubilee for you. Each of you is to return to your family property and to your own clan. The 50th year shall be a jubilee for you. Do not sow and do not reap what grows for itself or harvest the unattended vines, for it is a jubilee and it is to be holy for you. Eat only what is taken directly from the fields. It goes on, if you read all of Leviticus 25, and it starts to say these really radical notions to an ancient culture. Things like, if you owe any debt, it's forgiven. If you're a slave, you're set free. If you moved away from your family because you've been disowned, you can come back home. So every 50 years, there was a cultural reset. Everyone got a do-over. 
So no matter the consequences that you've accumulated over your life, the choices that you've made, the things that you've done, the debt that you've acquired that has now cost you your family's life into a life of slavery, every 50 years, do over, reset, year of jubilee. And so this idea of freedom for the captives was most commonly attached to the idea of this, that they knew every 50 years there was going to be freedom for the captives. And they talk about it often. Well, when Jesus shows up on the scene, what he's saying is, it's a year of jubilee is here. Through me, I am the fulfillment of the year of jubilee. Everyone gets what they could never get themselves. The debt that they owed, I'm going to pay it. The sickness that they have, I'm going to heal it. The relational brokenness that they've experienced have come to mend. And it's this profound, beautiful picture that he's saying, this is why I came, to have a kingdom of jubilee, to have a kingdom that allows there to be grace and forgiveness and restoration beyond our wildest dreams. And he continues not only saying that there's freedom for the captives, but release from darkness for the prisoners. Now, what's happening here in the original language is, is quite fascinating. He begins to start talking about this idea is, is, is a is an opening of the eyes widely. Now, this was used, if you can imagine this word picture, um, for those in deep darkness, it's another word for a dungeon. So uh, in ancient times, as a way to have prisoners, the worst of the prisoners would go the lowest into the dungeon, into these cells. And so no windows, no light, some of which would be staying there for years. Can you imagine years of never seeing sunlight? And Jesus comes along and he says, I've come to release, the word release literally means to open the eyes from the deepest darkness. So, I mean, imagine what that would be like, not seeing sunlight for, let's say, a few years being ushered and welcomed up and seeing the bright Palestinian sun for the first time in a long time. Imagine the, the, the adjustment, maybe even the pain, the sensation of like, I can't even, I can't even take all this in. And Jesus said, I've come to open widely the eyes who have been in deep darkness. Because there's people sitting in that synagogue that day with their arms folded, being like, now, really? My eyes have become adjusted to darkness. I can't help think that there's probably some people in this room and your eyes have become adjusted to darkness. You yourself have found yourself being like, and, and maybe you love Jesus and worship Jesus, but there's a sense of like, it's, it's just bad and it's gonna stay bad. I'm going to stay in darkness. I'm stuck here. And the gospel announcement is, hey, no matter how deep your darkness is, I'm going to open up your eyes. No matter how bad your captivity is, I'm here to proclaim freedom. And this provocative yet compelling invitation um, is what the kingdom is all about. And so every week we've been, the last few weeks and for the next couple We've been having short interviews with people within our community who are living out these different ideas of the kingdom of God. And so there, there's a couple in our church who have, um, I've known for quite a while and have influenced my life more than I think they've realized. Uh, but they have devoted their life to this, 
to announcing to people, not just announcing, but providing a way for people who have been stuck for freedom. People who have their eyes been adjusted to darkness for them to see light again. And um, their, their story is inspiring, but it's not one that we just get to listen to. I'm hoping it's something that engages our heart and our community and something that we can actually follow through and live into as, as a body um, of Christ. So can you guys put your hands together as we welcome Bruce and Ann Elliott to the stage? Thank you guys so much for being here. <laughs> I always love the invitation to give an interview. They're like, sure. I'm like, can you come to all three gatherings? And they're like, oh. <laughs> so thank you guys for spending all day at church today. So <laughs> glad you guys are here. I um, wanted to, uh, like I had mentioned, um, they've had a tremendous impact on my life uh, because when I was a senior in high school, um, just graduated high school and was in a band, um, had just gone on tour, and was very much considering this um, as my life. I was going to play music, I was going to record, I was going to tour, and I went on a trip uh, with you guys to Ukraine, and it changed my life. Um, I, didn't, I didn't prepare myself for what I was about to see or encounter, um, and I came, I came back and I quit my band, I went to Bible college, um, met that week, met my wife of now 13 years, um, but it began on a missions trip to Ukraine um, because of the work that you guys began there. And um, so mu much of me being here today is a result um, of this couple right here. And so I'm excited to get to interview you guys. Uh, so Bruce, if we can just begin with you, I would love for um, you just to kind of tell us how did, how did you end up working um, or doing the work that you've done in Ukraine? How did that come about? So, um, I mean, I did a finance degree. I worked in multinationals in finance. And then I, God really directed me to um, start my own business. So when I was 30 years old, I started a software company. And then by the time I was around 48, so it's over 20 years ago, um, I was in a group of Christian CEO businessmen, and we read a book by Bob Buford so called Second Half. And what the book basically says, challenges you, is you know, you've spent the first part of your life building a career, having a family, and all that. But at the end of your life, what do you want it to look like? And you know, do you want that to be it? Like you know, on your tombstone it says, yeah, I was a great businessman and raised some kids. Um, and you want to have a life of significance. And it really struck me, I did want to change the world with the rest mm. of my life. Mm. And so um, I just really felt impressed by God that um, I was to work with children. And um, it took a couple of years, and I think this is a lot of what God does, you know. He gives you something, a challenge and direction, but you have to wait. And two years later, our pastor of the church we're at at the time went uh, to Ukraine and was ministering in seminaries, teaching. And, but to go to Ukraine, you have to go through Kiev. It's the main city. It's about 8 million people, very big city. And he, um, someone said, you've got to go see the situation with the street children there. And so he went out and saw all these little street kids, all these kids on the street. 
and just he just sat there and wept. And he, when he came back and shared that, um, that's when we knew that's what our calling was. And so a year later, we went over with him again and really just changed my life upside down and my, my priorities in life as I saw all these kids and knew I needed to do something about it. And so there was an organization um, that operated there because we needed, we needed something to work, you know, to some foundation in the country. And um, they had Aliyah ministry, which is returning of the poor Jewish people to Israel. And um, he, Mel Holzel, a guy, he's in his 80s now, had been out, he'd, um, and he'd been at the Hydro Park where a lot of these kids were, and he picked up a little boy, about three, and he felt wet, and he realized he had no pants on. This little kid was just living out in the bush. Um, and so he was very angry with God on the way home, and he, he, he said to God, what are you going to do about these street kids? And God said to him, what are you going to do about it? Um, and so we, we've operated under that ministry um, as a children's ministry for the last over 20 years. And um, so we went out, and we just started by street feeding. I mean, we had no infrastructure. We just went in there and were feeding these kids, giving them clothes, very brutal winters. Um, and then in 2000, we started construction of our children's home, Father's House. Yeah. And, um, and these, these children, talk, talk about kind of the, the conditions that they were living in, the winters, things like that. What, what, were, what were you seeing? So, kind of where you were going over there? Yeah, there were, there were thousands of these kids all over the streets. The government didn't recognize it. They, um, they ignored it. They, they just didn't want to know it. Um, and, I mean, all I can say is where God really had biggest impact in my life, we were out, it was a February, it was probably 40 below zero, there was a really strong wind out of Siberia that was just, just brutally cold, like you never felt. And the kids would live in the um, sub-basement called Padvals, the buildings and on the sewers. I remember being in the sewer one night um, with the guy I was ministering with, and we were just ministering these little boys, holding them. And God really spoke to me and said, you know, this is where my spirit resides, more than any church. Wow. And um, mm. he really um, gave me his heart. And so I saw his heart for these kids. Oh, man. So when you guys began, you went from feeding, clothing, building an orphanage. Um, what, what was, how has that orphanage, what, what was it, and then how has that continued to progress, and what has that turned into? So we raised the money for a children's home. We realized we could get these kids off the street, um, and we were going to build it. And then a, a man, I got introduced to a man called Dr. Romo. He's a gynecologist who left medicine and dedicated his life to these kids and realized he was the man that we were to work with. Um, and we formed Father's House. I'm the chairman of the board. He runs Father's House. Um, and we, um, we built the children's home starting around 2000, opened it probably in 2001. 
But the thing with it is that God always increases. In other words, you do something, he says, yeah, that's, thank you, that was good. Now here's the next thing and the next thing and the next thing. And so we've, over the years, we fed kids on the street, as I shared. We visited little girls in, in, that were in prison because um, they had children's prisons there. Um, we, we've cared for mothers with their, in prison with their babies. Um, we started a camp called um, Island of Treasures where we took kids from the street onto an island in the Dnieper River in Kiev and take them over in a boat and so they couldn't get back to the street. Um, but if they wanted to go, we took them, but they weren't allowed to come back once they'd gone. Um, we um, have a mother and baby center because we realize abortion is a very, um, very high level of abortion. So um, supporting mothers that want to keep their babies. So we have a mother and baby center with children and their mothers. Um, and one of the things with, um, with, children, with a children's home, it's not God's best. God's best is adoption into a family. He's adopted us into his family. Mm. And he wants these children and family. So we work really aggressively at getting every kid into a family. Many come to America and families. We've adopted a child from father's house. Um, and the, the situation is, though, there's just so many kids, they don't all get adopted. So we have what we call graduates. These are the kids that have come through our program, and, you know, they turn 18, and so we have a program for them to live there and go to college or trade school and just transition to a successful life because you don't want to have kids in a children's home, and then when they're 18, well, that's been good, see you later, because they'll fail. And um, so we, we do that. Then we had a tremendous opportunity that came along where, you know, in, in San Diego that um, you have child and family services. So if you if kids report of abuse through school or neighbors, um, then they'll go and investigate, remove the child if necessary, um, and care for them. There was no such thing in Ukraine. The parents could basically do whatever they wanted to a kid. And so through Kiev Child and Family Services, we formed a group um, which we call the Child Rescue Center that um, we operate seven by 24. We get calls from parents, even from children themselves, from neighbors, from schools about abuse of children. So we go in there and assess the situation. We work with them to remove the children if necessary. We work with families. They're often very, very destitute and so we got to help them um, survive. A lot of alcoholism and kind of led us to our next problem because a, a lot of them are single mothers and they have to go through rehab to keep their children. But when they went to rehab, they'd lose their children. They would go into what's called the internet system or the government orphanage system. And so we had to establish a um, home where they could take their children and go through rehabilitation with their children. Uh, so they wouldn't lose them. And then also the other thing that has come along that he's um, provided is a, a center called Achieve, for, where we can send these kids after school, where they can be loved, they can be fed probably any decent meal of the day, and they can learn skills, you know, like English, dance, music, um, and help them with their homework and that kind of stuff. So that's kind of, so far we got, but... Um, uh, tell, tell us about um, Roma, who runs it, and they partner with 
uh, since then, you guys have started a church. Right. Out of that. And yeah. The, 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 in fact, um, what happened, the, the churches in Ukraine are very insular, and, um, and the ch children in the orphanage went to a church there, but there was a lot of jealousy. There's tremendous jealousy between churches and denominations. And, the part, and Roma had been, the, had been on the staff there. But the pastor announced one day that it wasn't the church's responsibility to care for children and orphans. And so out of that, we had to start our own church because we couldn't fellowship with that wow. kind of view. And so, um, you know, you all probably heard Pastor Mark a couple of weeks ago at, from Faith. So out of... Out of faith, he's, a lot of churches have been launched, like Light Church and Soul Church, but also a church in Kiev called um, Our Heavenly Father's House Church. And Dr. Omer is the pastor. And it's a church that ministers to children. And it's really interesting you go there, you know. And, um, you know, we've got, we got adults up here and the kids are down there. Well, the kids are all in there. And half the service is led by kids. It's um, Incredible. pretty brilliant. A room full of orphans who've been rescued yeah. and are doing church together. And they preach. You know, the little boy a called David that preached is amazing. So good. Yeah. So good. Yeah. I love it. And, and, and it doesn't need to seem in there because um, uh, and they kind of talk about how that's moved now even to a countrywide movement and even a global movement right. for orphans. So yeah, out, of, um, out of Father's House, it's kind of considered the premier um, children's um, care program in Ukraine and Dr. Roma has tremendous influence with the government mm. and their programs. In fact, they're asking him, they've got a new government was elected in May, a new president, and they're asking him to nominate people to various child welfare positions in the government. Wow. Um, so and cool. um, out of this became a, a, a movement in Ukraine called Ukraine Without Orphans where they try and eliminate orphanhood and it encompassed the whole nation and taught them about a, for a spirit of adoption and um, fostering for these kids. But out of that, in turn, it, it just went worldwide to a uh, world without orphans wow. in about 30 or 40 countries now. So just, just, just to recap, um, a little bit over 20 years ago, you had a moment where you saw something and you started feeding children. And the, just the nature of the kingdom of God, Jesus is like a mustard seed that grows and grows and grows. Over 20 years later, this movement that began with a, a vital, yet very felt need being met, now there's literally a global movement called World Without Orphans um, that has stemmed out of... Um, I just I love you guys' story because you guys were... Minding your own business, raising kids, having a business, and you and God opened your eyes, and you were willing, and you've let Jesus take you on a journey that has, has quite literally changed the world, and is changing the world right now, um, which is so encouraging um, for me. And also, when we were talking, I said, "Like, hey, so what's next for us? How can we get involved as a church?" And um, and so they've. Uh, they're going to provide a couple of different opportunities. There's going to be some pictures on the screen, if we can, of um, some of the, the children, the camps we have. And, and can you tell us kind of what some opportunities well, are that are coming one up? One idea we've got is if, um, taking a summer team. Actually, Dwayne um, 
Benji's dad, and Dwayne, Papa Dwayne, he has been there uh, four times uh, with Bruce. And one of the times they actually did the summer camp I'm talking about, it's um, in a village about three hours from Kiev. And um, this year, from mid-July to the end of August, um, every two weeks, the kids change. And they're for crisis families like kids from really bad situations. And they come to the Lord, and it's very life-changing for these children. But it's very hard to get um, teams to come. And so um, we thought you could think about it, um, sort of like about this time next year. Um, We just sort of jump in and do a week or two weeks or ten days, whatever would work. And then if you think, oh, camping, that's a bit much. Um, In your female, at the end of sort of April, in the springtime, I usually take ladies. And we work in, we're talking about the um, mobile unit with the kids um, and families, after school program, father's house. And a highlight is always the rehabilitation house, praying for and working with the mums. And the, um, and the children. So that's something else you could think about. But um, everybody who's ever been on teams, we have people that repeat it and come. It's, um, it's life-changing. Yeah, it really is. And so there's, um, you're welcome to talk to them after service, but there's also a website on the screen and an email address. Uh, take a picture of it. Um, and I can just start praying. Like, would the Lord want you to go to Ukraine next summer um, and experience something that is just so near and dear to the heart. James 1.27 says the pure and undefiled religion is this, to take care of orphans and widows in their time of need and to be unstained by the world. So highly encourage you to be thinking and praying about that. Can we thank uh, Bruce and Anne for for the awesome job? So inspired. as always, we, we encourage you when we hear these incredible stories, um, all we want you to do is have your heart open. Um, you're going to hear probably more opportunities, more things going on than you probably can give yourself to. And so the goal is not for you to do everything. The goal is to just say, Lord, is there something you want to grab my heart, something I can start to put my life into? And so um, we'll just ask you just to be open to that. Uh, and then for those of you who are in that season of life, you're like, well, I'm raising small kids, or I'm, I just started my career, things like that. Um, we are, in a few weeks, we're going to be having um, a Sunday dedicated to what does the kingdom of God look like in like, just your life, your place of work, your place of school, your family, your routine, because it is just as vital there as it is. And so you can see something like this, and like, wow, that's overwhelming. But I wanted you to see, it didn't start overwhelming. They didn't start like, we're going to start a, a global nonprofit to rid the world of orphans. It started with saying, oh, I think the Lord wants me to help with kids. And then the Lord has just continued to do something. And that's my hope, is that we would have a community filled with people. So I think the Lord's directing me there. In 20 years, we'll get to have a conversation and say, look what God has done um, as a result of our obedience and faithfulness to his leading um, but as always, uh, as we hear these stories, we want to look at the life of Jesus. We want to see what is he doing uh, throughout the scriptures that mirrors this and that we see him engage uh, the, the freedom that we've talked about, the recovery of sight to the blind. And so uh, we're going to be looking at a moment where Jesus quite literally recovers sight to a, a blind man. 
Um, so if you have a Bible, turn to Mark chapter 8. And as you're turning there, I'm just going to set the scene a little bit. Um, Jesus has been traveling around doing miracles, gaining a lot of momentum. He now has just finished feeding 4,000 people with five loaves of bread. Um, I mean, that's the God I want to serve, right? A God who just has toast for everyone and really good bread. And that's kind of honestly the, the kind of the, the feel of the crowds. They're like, they want more. I guess it's cool. Like free bread everywhere we go. And so the Pharisees in Mark chapter 8 come and they demand a sign. They're like, show us a sign. You can imagine Jesus being like, I, I thought I just did. I thought, I thought I just showed you a sign. Show us another one. And rather than the disciples uh, kind of butting in, they kind of go with it. They kind of want to see another sign too because who doesn't like a good sign? Who doesn't like free breakfast? But then Jesus rebukes not the Pharisees this time, but the disciples. And he tells them this. Do you have eyes but fail to see? And ears but fail to hear? And challenges them. He's like, haven't you seen enough? You understand I'm a rabbi, I'm a miracle worker, and I give really great gifts and blessings. Don't you see it yet? And he's alluding to what we're going to find out later in the chapter where they have this epiphany that he is not just a miracle working rabbi, he is the Messiah of the world. But they don't see it yet. They partially see it. And this is kind of where we find ourselves in the story in Mark chapter 8. Verse 22 says, They came to Bethsaida, which is kind of the northern tip of the Sea of Galilee, where Peter was from. And some people brought a blind man and begged Jesus to touch him. You can almost hear that same thing, like, we want to see another one. Here's a blind guy, heal him. But listen to Jesus. He took the blind man by the hand and led him outside the village. When he had spit on the man's eyes, what a wild day for this guy, <laughs> and put his, hands, put his hands on him, Jesus asked, do you see anything? He looked up and said, I see people. They look like trees walking around. Once more, Jesus put his hands on the man's eyes. Then his eyes were opened, his sight was restored, and he saw everything clearly. Jesus sent him home saying, don't even go into the village. Um, man, profound story. There's a, there's a few really interesting things happening here. And, and as you read this, just a kind of a Bible study too, when you read the Bible, you should be asking questions. Why is this happening What's going on here? Why did he do this? The first question I come across while reading this, why did he have to spit in the guy's eye? Is that just weird to anyone else? I mean, just for hygiene purposes alone. Like, that cannot be good. Uh, I mean, I know it's like God spit, but like, still, it's just kind of weird. He spits in this guy's eye. I mean, the poor guy, he's already being led by hand. He's blind outside the village, and all of a sudden, like, like just, you know, double shot. And then Jesus touches his little sticky eyes, you know, I'm sure the guy's like, what in the world is going on right now? And Jesus asks him, you know, what, what do you see? He says, well, I, I see people walking around, but they look like trees. So we can kind of, it kind of alludes to the fact that maybe this person had seen before. But he describes, but he, he doesn't really see fully. 
which is interesting. It's kind of the only time we see in Scripture that Jesus' miracle, we've seen, there's another time where he can't do a miracle because of people's faith, but never like a, a half miracle. So he kind of does it. And so scholars debate like why this happens. You know, did he not have enough faith? And then after you could kind of see, he had full faith. Um, is there something prophetic about the trees even being attached to Isaiah 61? And all of these are, I think, the, the, I, I can understand the thinking behind it. But I think the answer is the context of this passage. Remember, Jesus just asked his disciples, don't you see yet? Don't you see? Don't you have eyes? Can't you see? But then after this passage, we have this incredibly profound moment where Jesus says, who do people say that I am? So some say John the Baptist, some say Elijah. And then Jesus asks us questions, which I, I hope all of us get asked today. He said, what about you? Who do you say that I am? And Peter, for the first time in Mark's gospel, has his moment where he says, you are the Messiah. And all of a sudden we see this picture of the disciples partially seeing and then fully seeing. And so what I, what I believe is happening here with this blind man is actually a metaphor for what's happening in the heart of his disciples. They kind of see, but there's more that needs to be seen, which reveals something so incredibly beautiful about the character of our God that he is not satisfied with us partially seeing, but is committed to us until we fully see how, how amazing is our God that he would not settle in the fact like, well, they're doing better. You're only half dead. But he's committed to us being fully alive. Paul, the Apostle Paul writes in his letter to the Philippians that he's the author and the finisher of our faith. He begins it and finishes it. We serve a God who does not stop halfway with us. How, how, what good news that is as creatures of process and journeying and story that we just don't all of a sudden hear a message or a, new, or a story and all of a sudden we're better. And even though we can be regenerate in a moment. He desires us to take a lifetime of what we call sanctification or, or, or spiritual formation or discipleship, whatever you want to call it. It's a process. It's the heart renovation that he looks at us and he says, I'm so glad you kind of see, but I'm not letting you go until you fully see. I'm going to touch you again and again and again. It's Bruce sitting and said, oh, you need food. Well, but you need food. You also need clothes, but you don't, you actually need a, a shelter. So we're going to build you a shelter. But you know what? This is going to keep happening unless we get the moms and dads some rehabilitation. But we also need to make the government aware. And you can start, start seeing that this is the work of the kingdom. It goes on and on and on. It does not, it is not satisfied with any corner of our hearts, lives, or world's left in darkness. It is committed to the holistic restoration of all things, it says in scripture. And this is the God that we serve. This is the Jesus that is revealed in this. And the third question this, this brings up is he tells this guy, don't go back to the village, just go home. Which just lets me know another beautiful aspect of who Jesus is. There was nothing within him that was trying to use this person's miracle for his own personal benefit. 
And, and so there's just, again, kind of looking over this, this sto- story, there's going to be, I think they're going to be on your screen, but just three, three thoughts through this about the freedom that the kingdom of God brings. Number one, the kingdom of God, the kind of freedom that it brings um, is felt, right? It's spit on the eyes. It's hands on the eyelids. It's, it's something that as a blind man, he could actually identify with. And, and one thing that just amazes me is when I talk, there's, there's people in this room right now who you've just began relationships with Jesus. I love your stories because he meets every single one of us kind of where we were. Ways that we could actually feel him. Um, one of my best friends got saved when he was drunk at a party. And Jesus showed up and touched his life. It's that sense of the kingdom of God is felt. It meets people in their darkest place. It's close and intimate, even when you think it shouldn't be. And the second point is that the freedom that the kingdom brings follows through. It isn't just like, well, I'll give you kind of here and kind of here. No, it's like, I I can't stop walking alongside their process of holistic healing. And lastly, is that the freedom the kingdom brings is not self-serving, self-gratifying, or self-seeking. It is selfless. I mean, think about this. Here's, here's all this precious. Show us another sign. Show us another sign. Jesus goes out of his way to not. He says, I'm gonna, I want to heal you not because it's going to grow my ministry. I want to heal you not because it's going to add to my success. I want to heal you not because I'm a people pleaser. I want to heal you because you're blind and I want you to see. Just go home. Don't, please don't go tell other people. This is the kind of kingdom that we serve. It's an upside-down kingdom. It's not transactional or an opportunistic. It is pure, selfless love that is committed to walk alongside to hold freedom in ways that are felt amongst those who are truly in deep darkness. You guys bow your heads with, bow your heads with me. This message was recorded at Light Church in San Diego, California. For more information, please visit us at lightsandiego.com.